Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be chatting with Assemblywoman Heidi Swank, and reporter Riley Snyder is here to help with the questions. As always, we'll close with some to and fro on the issues of the day between myself and the Indies managing editor, Elizabeth Thompson. Those discussions can get spirited. A reminder, if you like us, rate us on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher. Tell your friends, even tell your enemies. Tell people you see on the street. We appreciate it. So let's get started with my recap of some of the week's headlines from the Nevada Independent. The big news came toward the end of the week when Riley and Daniel Rothberg reported that NV Energy announced plans to double the state's use of renewable energy and build huge solar facilities, but with one teeny tiny caveat. Only if the energy choice ballot question passes. I'm sure the timing of this is coincidental as the monopoly utility ramps up its campaign to defeat question three. And Riley also broke the news that Governor Brian Sandoval, who said previously that he was voting for the energy choice initiative, is now undecided. You can find both of Riley's stories and Daniel too on the NevadaIndependent.com. Also this week, back as those state Senate recalls, I bet you forgot about those, I almost did, announced they will appear their latest, appeal their latest loss to the state Supreme Court. Riley reported that while the district court judges already declared the efforts deficient and it's unlikely that they can win appeal, they appealed anyhow. Then again, this is Nevada where courts can be unpredictable. But even if they win the case, the elections probably wouldn't take place until 2019. Ridiculous, you say? You are not alone. The Republican gubernatorial candidates gathered for a televised forum on the CBS affiliate in Las Vegas this week, and Michelle Rendell's wrote it up. Adam Laxalt still managed to make news despite the format. The most striking thing he said was how he voted against pardoning a man declared innocent by a judge and pardoned by all other members of a state board because he was following the lead of local prosecutors. Local prosecutors, by the way, who made factual errors in their submission to the pardons board. Laxalt said voting against a pardon, quote, simply wasn't a tough call. I still don't get this, though. If it wasn't a tough call, why did the attorney general first try to abstain before being told that he could not by the governor? I think I need to go back and take a logic class to understand this. Finally, this week, the very busy Riley and our intern, Sonny Brown, had a great fact check on an ad in the governor's race, and our college contributor, Jeremy Marsh, made a series of charts to illustrate a follow-the-money feature on the U.S. Senate race. These pieces show our indie commitment to checking claims and tracking campaign cash. You can read these stories and more on the site, as I said, the NevadaIndependent.com. There's a lot more to check out, too, including our must-read indie blog that has snippets of news you won't see anywhere else, including news of how major Republican elected officials are attending a barbecue this weekend that was going to be hosted by a sheriff accused of misconduct, but we've just learned before we recorded this podcast on Thursday that he is not going to be there. What a coincidence after we wrote about that. Again, that's all at the NevadaIndependent.com. We'll be back in a moment with Heidi Swank. Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast in the Nevada Independent. I'm here with Riley Snyder, one of our great reporters, and Assemblywoman Heidi Swank. She's a Democrat 
from Clark County, first elected in 2012. Welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. You know, I just uh, before uh, we, I, I let Riley jump in and actually ask uh, uh, some some questions, I, 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 it'd be great if you'd react to this news. Just as a state legislator, that Envy Energy has just an- made this announcement today that it's all in for renewable energy. It's going to double what the state has, with that one little caveat. What did you think of that? Well, it was definitely interesting, and I, I'll say that we're kind of kind of look at how things kind of come out. I feel like with these. Uh, ballot initiatives and all of these ways of trying to govern um, that don't allow us to make changes further on. It's always kind of an iffy uh, way to go forward. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of things that are going to happen around all of these discussions of renewable energy. And I'm really not one to get into um, the fray at the beginning, wait and see how things come out and they'll settle out. And we've got a long time till November. That's very, very diplomatic. Some might, some might say you dodged the question, but I would never use uh, that, that phrase, assemblywoman. I, I, but I did t- latch onto something that you said, which I think is a really key point, which is this is making serious, serious policy at the ballot as opposed to trusting people like Heidi Swank, even though you would have to make some decisions, obviously, a- after this and what a new re-regulated marketplace looks like. Is that right, Riley? Is that what we're supposed to say now, re-regulated? I think if we say deregulated, we lose a lot of sponsors. We lose so, sponsors, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we have so many sponsors for this podcast already. All right. So so I guess what I'm wondering is, it, does that frustrate you as a legislator that they are going to the ballot with something like this? Yeah, I would say in this political climate, I understand people's frustrations with their perceptions of how the process works. I would say that here in the state of Nevada in general, we uh, at the legislature can work pretty well together as opposed to the way things seem to be going in D.C. So, but there, so there are concerns I have with just the inability to make tweaks to things. We, we see that just in between legislative sessions, right? We are only up there every other year, and the number of unintended consequences that can come out of a bill, at least in the next, the next session, we can make some fixes to it, but it's much harder if it's a, it's a, if it's a ballot initiative. Uh, I guess uh, what I'm wondering about is this has happened a lot in California. Uh, where uh, I, I don't know what the latest number is. It's almost like 80% of their budget is encumbered by things that have been put uh, on the ballot. Uh, do you think that's the way that we're going here? And I would say as a liberal Democrat, I hope not. Um, yeah, and I think that we need to be very careful about that because if you could imagine 80% of our budget being encumbered that way, it could really make it very difficult to get programs out there that we need to be funding, to be funding education adequately, uh, to be ca- taking care of um, the bigger picture of the state of Nevada. Uh, so I am I am, I, I am not a huge fan of, of this this type of governance. I think that there are definitely reasons that people have been frustrated with the political process, and but that's our job as legislators to go out there and listen to people and to try to, um, I mean, we're, our job is to represent those people who elected us, and we need to just remember that when we go up to Carson City. I'm going to let Riley jump in here uh, in, in a minute, as I know he's eager to do, but just one last question. Did you vote for the Energy Choice Initiative in 2016? You know, I'm not going to, I really actually don't talk about, because I think it's really important that my constituents vote the way they want to vote and not the way that I voted. You know, that's one of the few dodges, Riley, that I actually let politicians take because, and I don't know why they don't take it more often. No clues here. You should black out this part of the podcast because really it's a secret ballot and you're saying you, you, should, you don't want your constituents to be influenced by you. I think that everyone needs to make their own decision. And if that goes along with what I say or not, that's that's actually none of my business. You think I should have let her dodge on that, Riley? Uh, I'm not going to comment okay, on right. that. 
Um, all right. Well, John, you've stolen all my energy questions. So <laughs> let, let's, let's dig into why um, one of the reasons we asked Assemblywoman Swank. Uh, and again, thank you for coming on the, sure. the podcast. Um, what, what I want to talk about today is something that really isn't in the news that much. It's sort of just a, an ongoing issue. And this is this issue of payday lending. This is something you worked on during the 2017 legislative session. This is something I've reported on uh, continuously. There are, there are cases in, in the state Supreme Court all the time. There's a recent audit found, I think, about a third of payday lenders were found to be um, not meeting state law or regulations over the last five years. This is an ongoing problem. It comes up almost every legislative session. And Assemblywoman Swank introduced a bill in the, the 2017 session that was designed to, to sort of address some of the uh, abuses and some of the issues with payday lending. But wh- where I want to start is I think a lot of people have an idea of, of the concept of payday lending, high interest loans. We all see the the Dollar Loan Center ads on TV, or we see the billboards as we drive on the highway. Um, how does the state of Nevada regulate payday loans? What does it uh, d- define as a payday loan currently in law? Right. So there are definitely, um, there are they're kind of different products within, I think most people talk about payday loans as this kind of umbrella term to cover a whole bunch of different, what, what the industry calls products. Um, so there are um, these payday loans, which are also known in the NRS as, as deferred deposit loans. These are the types of loans, the most common ones that we think of when we think of a payday loan. And um, this is where the borrower will supply either a a personal check or the ability to uh, do an electronic transfer um, at the end of the loan in order to pay off the, the bulk of the loan. Um, but there's also high interest loans, and these can be a single payment loan, an installment loan, an open-ended loan. They tend to be um, in excess of, of 40% interest rate, uh, sometimes as high as 400% in the state of Nevada. Uh, and then there are also um, title loans, which are loans against your vehicle. And these are, um, according to NRS, in excess of, a th- of 35% interest rate, but again, tend to be uh, much higher than that. Uh, uh, but it, it is not, I'd say the title loans are not so that you can refinance. That's a very different uh, type of loan against a vehicle. This is really just against the value of that of that vehicle as a short-term loan. So those are kind of three different products that um, often get lumped under the payday loan umbrella, but they, they um, in some ways are very different, um, are very different ideas and different things that they're trying to achieve or not achieve. Riley, Riley, before you before you go on, because, because I think some of this stuff might be surprising to people. You wrote about, I was surprised by some of the stuff you wrote about. You almost just glossed over it. You said it almost from memory, that these the interest rates can be 35% or 400%. I think people listening to this are saying, what? Uh, how can that be possible? Aren't there usury laws? Why, why is this even allowed? And I think people would be really interested in knowing how that's even possible. So this happened in the 80s um, when Citibank came in, and one of the uh, requirements was that we get rid of our uh, cap. And so um, after that cap went away, uh, which is, I find it interesting because from what I understand, it, it wasn't anything Citibank even needed to have taken off the books. And so, but it was one of the requirements for when they came in, which I believe was in the early 80s. I don't even remember that. I'm the only one old enough here to have said that I was actually there when that facility opened. They called a special session, I believe, in 1984. And, 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 and they came here. I didn't, re- I didn't even remember that they so they erase those laws for Citibank. Th- this is my 
my understanding huh. of what I've been told, and which was I find it I don't know I haven't gone back and looked at the 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 meeting minutes. I mean, I was in high school at the time, so you see, I just, um, as I said, I was the only one old enough to be around at that time. Well, you didn't have to emphasize that you were in high school. <laughs> I don't think Riley was born, but it would be interesting, I think, to go back and like look at the at the hearings from that special session to see like what was the justification there when it wasn't even something that that the company really was going to be exploiting or needing. Yeah, because that, that's the whole sort of crux around this issue of payday lending, right, is that normal banks like Wells Fargo or Citi or whoever don't extend loans or sort of uh, short or small amounts of cash to income poor people, right? Mm -hmm. And this is always their argument during the session that there is no alternative for someone who needs $200 immediately and has no other options. They can't take that loan out from Wells Fargo, for example. So, you know, but before we talk about what happened during the legislative session and sort of um, some of the news you, you brought here today, um, I, I'm interested to get your response to that argument that mm -hmm. what are the alternatives for cash poor folks who, who need money? I think you can look at statistics that show like one out of every three or four or five Americans don't have enough to cover like a sudden unexpected $500 expense. Why shouldn't they have access to this uh, this? capital at even if even if the interest rates are so high. Right. And so what I would say is that they do they should have access, but I don't think they need to have access at 400% interest. And I also think there are a lot of ways in which, you know, folks who not there are there are people who come and take out payday loans and they use them for what they're what they're meant for. They pay them back on time and they don't need to kind of roll them into the next loan. Um, they limit themselves to just a few loans. I think there's something like um, uh, sixty percent of the people who um, take out one loan a year pay it off. I mean, there's if you just take out one loan a year, you're much more likely to pay off that loan than than if you are someone who takes multiple um, loans out a year. So my argument is that. I think that there is a way, there are definitely um, products out there that don't charge 400% interest, that are under 200% interest, which may still sound like amazingly high to folks, but I understand that these are high-risk borrowers and that there is going to be a number of them who don't pay it back and there needs to be a way to... Um, ensure that the next person who needs a loan can take it out. And so that I'm not saying that uh, we need to have extremely low um, interest rates for folks who are really high-risk borrowers, but we I do think that 400% and a lot of other things that we're not doing to protect people who are in desperate straits. And people, you know, if if you're in a spot where you are um, needing to make a choice between uh, taking out another payday loan or um, or getting, you know, your your rent paid on time, you're going to think, oh, I can take that loan out. It's only a, it's only a twenty five dollar. You know, it's only one hundred and twenty five dollars that well, it's one hundred twenty five dollars that my landlord's going to charge me. Um, I was just listening to a payday loan uh, commercial on the radio on my way in. And their their deal was that it's it's one hundred and twenty five dollars that that your landlord is going to charge you for for late rent, whereas if you um, take out a loan, you're going to be able to pay that back right away, right? But the the chances are you're going to pay more in interest and fees than one hundred and twenty five dollars. And so I think we need to find ways to protect people when they are desperate to make sure that they are being treated well by these companies. I think we need them, and we just need to find a way to regulate them better. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing that I, you presented during the 2017 legislative session was sort of the geographical dis, uh, location of all these places. They're they're typically in, you know, high poverty areas, areas with a lot of uh, w with high minority communities. I know that the industry has done a couple of reports and and 
I think it's like from 99, if I remember right. And if I'm wrong, I'll get an angry email from <laughs> one of their lobbyists. But um, do we know as a state, like, what kind of people are taking out these loans? Any of the demographic information, is that collected in any way? Very little. Um, we would have been collecting it had my bill gotten through. We would have had a database. And I would say that's something that uh, the commissioner, George Burns, has been saying that is would be very helpful for them. Because I, I in my um, presentation for my bill uh, last session, I cited a lot of data from other states. And that's because we don't have it here. Like we can't even at this point without this simple database that wouldn't even cost the lenders anything. Um, it would have added at most a dollar onto each of these loans that people take out. We would have been able to collect data on how many loans people take out because we can't even without knowing in real time um, how many loans that person sitting in front of you has. Any changes to the NRS that would limit the number of loans someone can take out in a year are are pretty useless because we don't even know. We can't track it. But yeah, like I could drive right now to Money Tree and then go to a dollar loan center, and the state has no way of knowing because there's no centralized tracking. It's sort of correct. It, it only comes up if you file a complaint or something like that, right? Correct. And so if we had this database, we would have an idea of what areas were problematic and what areas we could leave alone. You, you mentioned Commissioner Burns. I think a lot of people listening don't know who that is, and, uh, but, and, and maybe you can then talk about who that is and what the regulatory framework is mm -hmm. that actually exists. So he really oversees all of these, these industries, and if there are reports that – if there are problems that go, that go to his division and – And he is – Which I'm now, of course, spacing on. Is it Financial Institutions? Yeah. yeah. Financial Institutions Division right. or yeah. FID. Right. Yeah, FID. thank That's you. I, I knew okay. it. Yeah. If I don't write it down, I swear well, that's it falls okay. I, just out of my head. I want people to get some kind of sense of how it's regulated. Yeah, no, and I think that you know there there are a way, lot of ways in which he would like to have. I mean, I'm projecting here on what he would like to have, but it seems that if he had something where he could at least know where the problems are, and as a legislator, it would be very helpful for us too, because in many ways, like this bill that I brought last session was a huge bill with lots of pieces in it. Because we're not exactly sure what needs to get fixed, but we need to do some fixes, right? And so if we had this database, then we would be able to go and with much more precision, uh, be able to fix the pieces that need to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And your bill was one of several that were introduced last session that were trying to deal with the issue of payday lending. Treasurer Dan Schwartz had a bill. Um, Assemblyman Edgar Flores had a bill. Mm -hmm. uh, your bill was very ambitious. It tackled a lot of things outside of the the issue of the the database. Can mm -hmm. you talk about some of the, the the parts of your bill that were in the original one that was introduced? Yeah, and I'm trying to remember all of them. Right, there's a it was a it was an ambitious bill. It was it was a lot of fun to have the conversations for sure. I mean, so it, one of the things was the database. Um, it also would have established a rate cap of 36 percent, which definitely got some uh, people's attention. Um, then it. Would have tweaked ability to repay to have to consider the these underwriting factors that uh, regular loans consider, um, and then and I know like um, Assemblyman Flores, his bill did address ability to repay to a degree. It did put in some pla in in place some um, some uh, criteria that has to be considered now. So that that's definitely a big help. And that was an issue because folks would give these loans out, and it says in the law you have to consider ability to repay, but there was no definition. No 
definition, definition of it. Of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would say that one of the things that we weren't able to do is to say that it should be a certain percentage of someone's um, gross monthly income. The Pew Charitable Trust suggests 5%. Right now it's at about 25% in Nevada. So um, uh, so it would be good if we could make some headway there. Um, my bill last session also would have limited the number of payday loans to six per year. You would have had to been able to take out only one at a time with a, a waiting period in between. Um, it did um, prohibit utility payment centers at payday lending storefronts, mainly because they, this is used as a way to draw people in. You have to pay your utilities, right? So you go pay your utility bill and they say, hey, you need a loan to help you out with that. So, right, so it would just make sure that stayed clean. Um, it required a distance separation between storefronts. And I, and to me, as somebody who's very interested in planning, and um, I think distance separations are extremely important. It would have said you had to have um, basically two blocks in between these storefronts, which also would have cut down that concentration, right? Because one of the things that I argued last session is that by in low-income areas, creating a, a concentration of payday lenders, you create this this idea or this visual that that is the default lending organization, that it isn't a bank you go to for anything. It's, it is these high interest lenders. And I think that, um, that creates a, a, just a very different view of how, of how credit works in the world in these communities. Um, it also would have um, extended the Military Lending Act, which is actually something I tried to do in 2015. Uh, it would have extended the Military Lending Act to veterans and that it also um, that the contract must be written in the language in which the transaction transaction took place. So it was a big bill. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of stuff. Just really quickly for people who don't know, what is the Military Lending Act and what? So, right. So what do? it says is that um, if you are active military and you take out a payday loan, you can only charge up to thirty six percent interest. And this is because it actually became a matter of national security before the Military Lending Act because we had so many service people that. Um, were um, in debt to payday lenders that they could not deploy. And so this wouldn't, but one of the challenges with this is that now if you go on a lot of these websites for um, payday lenders, they don't lend to uh, people who are active military. And so you get active military who come in and just say they are not, they don't say they're active military mm -hmm. so they can get the loan. Uh, let me just ask one general philosophical question because I do I do also want to go through Riley and Assemblywoman Swank what happened with that bill and, 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 and what came out and what didn't come out and what, why that happened. But it seems to me that this – and you said openly and, and you don't run away from it. You're a liberal Democrat. And this would seem to be kind of like the, the contrast in philosophy and to play devil's advocate. You know, you're, you're, you're an advocate of essentially what conservatives sometimes call the nanny state. We can't let people be responsible for themselves. You know, if I want to go out and, and – I, and, and and I want to go get a payday loan, why should you be able to stop me from doing it if I want to go, go, go get 15 in a year? Why should the government be able to tell me what to do? And so you have this classic tug of war from letting people be responsible for their own actions and you as the government uh, taking on the role of trying to protect me from myself, essentially. I'm sure you've thought about this. Sure, and I have a good answer for you, too. I'm waiting. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I would say is that what happens if you take out 15 in a year? You end up in this cycle of debt, right? You end up where you don't have the money to um, buy groceries to feed your kids. And we know, looking um, nationwide, that one in six people who take out payday loans are on public assistance. And that 
so that comes right on back to uh, the public where we are all then paying for that assistance in order to support them. So if we can just find a way to help them get the credit they need, make sure they don't get themselves into a cycle, that then we are going to end up saving money in the end too as a public. So if there is a public good to this that I, th I think not a lot of people kind of it takes a minute to kind of think that through, right, how that cycle works and that impact on public money. And I guess it's just striking the balance and what's reasonable and what's mm -hmm. not. And I guess you got the 36 uh, percent in your bill from the military lending bill then. Is that right? Correct. And other other sources, too, that recommend that as um, as a, a a reasonable interest rate. And, you know, for me, the 36 percent interest rate was a starting point for conversations. I figured that part, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you introduced your bill. I, I I think it was in uh, February or March of the legislative session. It, it was a year ago, so it's sure, hard to we'll go with that. remember. But I do remember um, that the one of the, the legislatively mandated deadlines for your bill to advance to the floor of the assembly, I believe, you submitted an amendment basically stripping out everything in the bill except for the, the database, which we talked about earlier. Correct. Um, what was sort of the political calculus going on to, to, mm -hmm. to do that amendment? Well, and that, you know, it, it's like we always go in with like – our, the bill we want, and we're going to work it and get it through. And then there's a lot of you know, back and forth. And I think when it came down to it, I really had to think about what we we're going to get through, the, what we we're going to get through both houses, what we we're going to land on the governor's desk that he was going to sign. And it seemed to me that if we could get the database, then we could at least start to know which of these other myriad of things that were in that bill we actually needed. And so I was willing to just say, okay, I mean, it's I'm, I'm not a big fan of studies, um, but it was akin to something like a study in that way. But it did allow us to gather data. And I'm a, I'm a very data-driven person. And I thought if we could just, I was fine if we just got that piece through just so that we could start to um, make some progress in the future. Mm -hmm. One aspect that I reported on then, and it's probably worth bringing up now, is that uh, for its size, the payday lending industry has a really strong lobbying presence in Carson City. It's something like two dozen people. They've given hundreds of thousands of dollars to your colleagues uh, during their campaigns. What was the pressure like from the lobbying corps? I know there were several former legislators who mm -hmm. were representing payday lenders. How tough was that to go up against? You know, it was fine. I mean, there, I had a spreadsheet of 21 people. I think one of your articles said 22. Um, my spreadsheet had 21. Mm -hmm. So, um, but That's the number of lobbyists. You're lobbyists, about. yes. Yeah, right? I had a spreadsheet of 21 lobbyists. They're people, so that, too. Lobbyists are people, too. I yes. just wanted to make sure you And some of them are very nice people, <laughs> right. too. Yes. So, but, you know, in the end, it, it's their job to represent um, an industry, and it's my job to represent my constituents, and I really, really believe that. And so my job is to be that voice for for all those people who live in, in not just in District 16, but for people across the state. And so my job is to sit down with those folks and try to find a middle ground. And if there's a lot of them, there's a lot of them. You know, if there's two of them, there's two of them. Um, it's it's a matter of not um, not worrying too much about how many there are. Um, I, I feel like I'm a pretty um, reasonable yet sometimes stubborn person. And so I can I'm fine sitting down with 21 people. Um, and having those conversations. Um, I'd say that some of them got kind of heated, uh, but that's fine too. I mean, I, I don't think that uh, there's really no reason to yell in the workplace. And mm -hmm. so I think that we can always you know, work well together, but um, some of those conversations got heated, but it was fine. I mean, it's 21 people. Mm -hmm. Does it surprise you at all that 
significant minority of the registered lobbyists for the petty lending industry were former Democrats. Former Assembly Speaker Jonas Segura was one of uh, Marcus Conklin and other former Assemblyman William Horn. Um, they represented different petty lending companies, but they sort of you know all worked together because they wanted to you know not have a thirty six percent interest. Uh, cap on that. Is it surprising that it's members of your political party that sort of are representing that industry? You know, I don't think so. I think that, you know, if you are any given industry, you are going to look toward the, um, to the background of people who are in the majority of that time, right? So that it, it makes good sense as the pay, for the payday led, lending industry to send some Democrats to go talk to a bunch of Democrats. I mean, that that's, that's just smart uh, business. And I, I don't, you know, that's, I don't begrudge them that. That's totally fine. It may be that, you know, I don't always agree with everyone. I always, I always say, I don't always agree with my husband. How am I always going to, how am I going to agree with anybody else all the time? And so I think, you know, it does make it, make conversations much easier with folks that I have a history with, but that doesn't mean we're going to agree and that I'm not going to stand my ground. Mm-hmm. We, we took a, sub, a segue on lobbying, but your, your bill was heavily amended and I, I don't believe it made it out of committee, right? It like, did not make it out of committee. Uh, so it never came up for a vote. Did you ever get an explanation why or did anyone ever? I was told that it did not have the vote. To get well, out but of let's, let's let's slow down here because I think the legislative process is kind of uh, uh, abstruse to most people. They don't really know how it works. Let's be clear on a couple things here. The Democrats controlled both houses of the session. It was a long time ago, but I'm remembering that correctly, right? It is correct. So why do you, uh, as a Democrat, and you've been around there for a few sessions now, uh, this is your third session, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you not know with what your colleagues control this process? I mean, I'm sure you talk to the leaders, you talk to the committee chairman. How do you not know as the sponsor of this big bill that would have made major changes, why it didn't get out of committee? There were not enough votes for the bill. Why? This is, everyone votes their own, their own. But aren't you frustrated by that? You're a Democrat. You would think that a lot of the things that you talked about are part of what a democratic ethos would be, right? Trying to protect people, uh, uh, minorities, people in, in po- poverty areas. How, 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 are you just not a good lobbyist for your cause? Well, that, that's wholly possible, <laughs> right? Um, you know, so I think that you know, there are differences of, of opinion. And there are, I mean, being a Democrat is not all being the same. And there are a range of perspectives. There are a range. I mean, I walk and knock on doors in my district and I knock on doors in other districts, very different populations that people are representing. And so people have to represent their constituents and vote, you know, vote to represent that group of people. You're frustrated, though, right? Oh, I mean, I think if if you don't get frustrated with every bill that dies, I mean, how... But this is an important issue to you. I mean, this is a really But there's a lot of... I'd say my... There's a lot of other bills of mine that have died in the past, too, that were very frustrating. Mm -hmm. So... But but if you're not in in it to, like, deal with the frustration, I mean, then... And come back and say, okay, so now we got to find the path. Right. If you're not going to if you're if, if you're going to get frustrated and give up at that point, this is probably not your game. Right. So it happens. Everybody loses bills that are really important to them. And then you've got to circle back to those folks that and, and, and do some work and figure out what their concerns were and try to meet them. One of the, uh, you know, bills die every legislative session. There's hundreds of bills that don't make it past the committee deadlines. But this concept of a, of a payday loan database sort of rose up like a zombie during the last couple of days of the legislative session. It was an emergency bill introduced by the assembly speaker 
Um, can you give us any sort of insight into how that came about, why he did that, and sort of what happened with that bill when it was introduced? You know, and I can't, I can't say whether the speaker brought it up. I, um, I just remember coming back on a Monday and finding it was, and and he had me into his office and said he was going to give this a shot, and um, and how you know it, it again, it's it's a very contentious issue. Um, it made it into the Senate, and then it did not make it out of the Senate. Senate's controlled by Democrats as well. So it was referred to a committee. What committee was it referred to in the Senate? In both sides, it was uh, Commerce and Labor. Commerce and Labor is chaired uh, in in the Senate by Kelvin Atkinson. Is that correct, Mm -hmm. Riley? Do I remember that correctly? Did you talk to Chairman Atkinson about why this bill that had been resurrected, as you point out, by the Speaker? By the way, I credit Riley for a lot of that, for his intense coverage of this and bringing this issue to the forefront. I think the Speaker probably felt some political pressure. I don't know that for sure, but I've been around long enough to see these kinds of things happen, Assemblywoman. Did you talk to Chairman Atkinson? Sure, and I spoke to the entire committee, and um, there weren't the votes to get it out of committee. And and do you know what arguments the lobbyists that Riley detailed, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what, what arguments held sway with these folks that this bill would not get out? What, what were the arguments that really convinced these people not to vote for this bill? I think they were concerned that the way it was in its amended form, and oh, actually in the in the in the Speaker Frierson's bill, it it would not um, encompass some folks who are not the best actors in the state as far as as lending. And so that was one of the concerns that I had heard. So th- this is usually what an industry does, by the way, when it doesn't like legislation. It says, oh, you're throwing us all in a- into the same barrel. You should only go after the bad apples. We are the good actors. Isn't that generally what the payday lending folks do up at the legislature? That's what everyone does, yeah. right? I mean, it's it's the way it's the way in which you can um, – I mean, it works on both sides. And legislators use the same many of the same tactics, right? You need to try to convince people about your bills and your perspective. And it's all – I mean that that's how that's how it works. And to be fair, like I've I've listened to way too much on payday lending in the last <laughs> two years, but I, I believe Commissioner George Burns, who we talked about again, is sort of the, the overall state regulator, has said that for the most part, the people who do violate uh, state law and state regulations for high interest loans tend to be the same company. It's like it's a practice that one company will do and they'll do it at all of their branches and that kind of ups the number up. Right. So there are bad actors. We'll call them Nick Cages, I guess, uh, <laughs> the, in the industry. And I, I, you know, I just wanted to lend. And, some. There, and there definitely are. And there are folks that are really just trying to, I mean, I, I might not, not agree with the way they run their business and their product, but they, they are not trying to game the system and they are not trying to skirt the system at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess just on the bill that Assemblyman Frierson introduced, Speaker Frierson introduced, I mean, how frustrating was it that this bill, it, if I remember correctly, it was the very last day of the legislative session. You had like 12 hours to go. It gets to the Senate committee. You have the hearing. And then they gavel, they're done, and it's the end. Like, that that must be really frustrating to get that close on the last day, right? Sure. I mean, it always is. I mean, I'd say that um, if, if you can get through, you know – 12 years in the legislature without having that happen to you, good good for you. But I'm going to guess that pretty much happens to everyone. I mean, at some point, you've got a bill that you are very invested in, and you cannot for some reason convince folks that that is a good idea. And, you know, in part, that's that's on me. I need to kind of go back and figure out how it, how it is that I make this, I explain myself better, and I make sure that I that people understand it. And maybe that's starting earlier. Uh, maybe it's not having, you know, as many very big bills, but really focusing on things. I mean, you have to kind of figure out 10 bills doesn't sound like a lot, but in the middle of a session, sometimes it feels like a lot. So you have to kind of figure out, you know, I, I feel like a lot of that is is just on me to kind of figure out what's my path. 
But you would you would strip this bill down right to just a database by by the end, right? What are the possible uh, uh, objections to just collecting data so legislators can make better decisions? What is the possible argument against that? I can see the payday lending lobby making some arguments against some of the the interest rate and some of the other kinds of things. Collecting data, what's the argument against that? You know, they all have to ask the folks who that. I mean, I don't have an argument. But, but, against did, but it. didn't you go to them and say, sure. "How could you possibly uh, vote against a bill that all?" I mean, we're just collecting data. That's our job, and, right? And what, what's their answer to you? You know, and and there were a myriad of answers. Some people said, you know, there were some very circular answers of, um, we don't know what the problem is. I mean, we don't even know if there is a problem. So why do we have to collect the data? Types of things. But I would say, for the you know, for the most part, there was there was just people who voiced concerns about who was and was not going to be in this database. Well, we don't have much time left, but I do want to just approach a couple of interesting issues. One of which was already raised here, which is the issue that William Horn and John Asagera and some others, former colleagues of of both yours and other people up there, there are a lot of people who say they shouldn't even be allowed to do that because what's really happening here, uh, when you when you have a, a, a toothless cooling off law or one that doesn't last uh, very long, is that they're not making the decisions based on the merits, that these are relationships that are being used uh, to try to, and industries pay for that. Uh, you're smiling, and, and I know why you are, because, uh, I, I don't know, you took Valium, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but but, but I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that I've seen this for years, and, and, and I know William Horn, when he was there, argued against the cooling off law because he had already openly announced he wanted to make uh, money uh, as a lobbyist. Uh, don't you think that can affect issues like that? That's why you, you're right. The industry has every right to go to Democrats because they can lobby Democrats. I'm not saying it necessarily should be illegal, but that is probably what hurt your bill, right, is that these Democratic legislators had previous relationships. But that's presuming that current lobbyists who meet legislators while they're in office don't develop. I mean, if you're a very good lobbyist, and we have, we have many very good lobbyists, you develop those relationships. Same kind of relationship, you think? I, I can't speak for that. But I think that, you know, these these are people that you need. You're convincing folks about why it is, you know, your client needs A, B, or C. And this is all about relationships. The way the, my relationships with But it other... shouldn't be all about relationships, right? It should be about the merits of the, of the it, bill, too. Right. Well, I'm not trying to act like I've just fell off the turnip truck. I'm just saying I think people listening who, who say, you know, who are frustrated and cynical about politics are saying, wait a second, right? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, and there are reasons to be frustrated with any system. System and how it works, and but the the fact is that there there are a lot of folks. I mean, presuming that just because you served with someone that that means that you're that much further ahead than someone who's been a lobbyist in the building for you know 50 years or something, right? I mean, I think that's that's not that's not fair either. I just wanted to ask one about one other aspect of this that we haven't talked about, and then if Riley, if you have any other questions, let me know. This is a different place than most places where the payday lending uh, uh, exists, and that is the fact that we have gambling here and that there are gambling addicts here. It, I, I think the numbers have always been vastly underrated and that the, you, you have people who probably are, are desperate for money uh, and are going to go to some of these payday lending folks, and, and it's just going to increase their addiction. Does that come up at all? You know that I I am not sure I have not looked at that data. Um, it's I don't think there is any. That's the problem. Yeah, I mean I I haven't heard that argument. Um, so I just actually, made that up on our podcast. Oh my goodness, Riley. <laughs> or it could be that I something I just missed. Right. I it mean, just so, seems yeah, it just no, seems like I mean, a natural argument mm-hmm. to make that we're a different kind of community. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm always hesitant about like the, the idea of uniqueness anywhere. I mean, as, as an anthropologist, I was always looking at across, you know, like the ways in which we're all very similar. So um, I think that it's an interesting question. I mean, it definitely should be looked at, but I, I honestly can't speak to that at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, something when I know we're, we're running uh, short on time, one, one of the reasons that uh, we asked you to be here is because um, you made a change to the law without the legislature being in session. Uh, this is something that I think a lot of people don't really realize, but um, the legislative staff can go in and they can uh, change kind of the structure of state law, the Nevada revised statutes, mm-hmm. um, for grammatical reasons. You know, a bill was passed and like drafted in the final minutes of the session and gets slammed out, and, and they have the authority to go and sort of like fix those errors, right? So a similar thing has happened with the section of state law that deals with payday lending that you want to tell us about. Correct. So there's a process called codification, which is when there is the incorporation of all of the new bills into the Nevada Revised Statutes, the NRS. And during that process of codification, you can make non-substantive changes. So that means you cannot you cannot make any changes that would um, make changes to law but you can reorganize chapters. So the chapter of the NRS that uh, deals with payday lending statutes is 604A. They're all numbered. And so one of the things that that you can do is to reorganize this. And so in codification, I worked with the, the Legislative Council Bureau to reorganize the payday lending chapter. All of the things are still the same. Everything is still governed just the same. It's just that we have high interest loans, payday loans, and title loans in separate chapters. And so that what happens then next session is that we can be much more strategic about uh, what sector of the overall payday lending um, uh, industry you are you want to increase or decrease regulations to. So it it makes it much easier for, I mean, both sides to plan, right? I think that it's going to, I know that some of the things, as you just said earlier, John, that some of the lobbyists and the and the um, lenders complain that they get lumped in with all these bad actors. Well, now we've separated them out into smaller groups of, of, of products. And so you can then focus your efforts there. And it should make it so that we can be a little bit more strategic and have bills that are a bit more focused and and um, just be able to um, yeah, be a lot more strategic as we go forward in, in how we um, either increase or decrease regulation to that industry. Mm-hmm. And that change took place several weeks ago, right? Like that, that is the state law now in the Correct. books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm assuming you're going to reintroduce the, the, the database bill. Are there other parts of the whole payday loan sector, whether it's mm-hmm. title loans, whether it's high interest loans, whether it's the, the deferred deposit loans, that you also want to tackle um, next legislative session? And and this is kind of like a really geeky, boring thing that I am really kind of as obsessed with. You're again. perfect for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I am big on distance separations. Um, I live right off of Oki and Las Vegas Boulevard. Um, I think distance separations are extremely important. So that I mean, we have we have some we have bail bonds that are that are ve- lots of them in my neighborhood. Uh, we have lots of payday lenders in my neighborhood. We need to be sure that um, there aren't uh, waivers given to um, the distance separations in between these businesses, because then, and it not only does it make it so that there are there is actual physical space for other options to come in, other banks or other types of lenders. Um, and again, goes back to that idea where it, where it sounds it seems like for some folks that 
payday lending or title loans are just the default credit option. So if we can keep those distance separations, it's it's much better um, to uh, just upend that idea that this is the default lending, but it's also much better for our communities. I mean, planning, having distance separations is such a good planning tool for anything. Uh, We do that for short-term rentals. It has to be 660 feet between short-term rentals. And I mean, I think that there are a lot of good things that come from distance separations. Keeping bars away from schools, these kinds of things. Right, right. Yep. All these types of things. And I think that it is, um, to me, it's kind of the quiet success of being able to have distance separations in place that cannot be that cannot be waived. So I'm very interested in that. And I also think that if there is um, waiting periods between loans, uh, giving people access to longer, either what uh, Assemblyman Flores' bill did that creates longer um, repayment plan options or allows the loan to go into default, uh, those are ways to kind of break that cycle of rollover. Well, our KUNV partners are going to kill me for going over a half an hour uh, on this interview. But I do want to say I'm very, very impressed that uh, you are now learning the veteran legislator trick of taking a non-substantive process, uh, in quotes here, of, of codification to make substantive changes to try to get something passed next time. I will say I'm very impressed by that. Thank you. See, she just admitted it, Riley. We got that on <laughs> tape now. Uh, Heidi Swank, uh, someone from, from Clark County, thanks so much for coming on this very important issue. We appreciate your coming on. Thank you. I Riley, appreciate it. thanks for coming on as well. No problem. All right. We'll be back in a moment. Elizabeth Thompson will be here. Welcome back to the Nevada Independent Podcast, Indie Matters. I'm here now with Elizabeth Thompson, my intrepid managing editor and the person who really runs the Nevada Independent. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. So let's talk about a couple of big issues that our reporters were all over this week, and I already talked about one earlier uh, in headlines and, and with Heidi Swank, and that's this press conference that Envy Energy had on Thursday when we, uh, as usual, are recording this podcast to say that uh, we're all in for renewables. We love renewables. We're going to double it. We're going to build solar plants. If, if, if the Energy Choice Initiative was passed overwhelmingly in 2016, fails this year, NV Energy, of course, is funding a huge uh, campaign, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, they claim at least $30 million that they are going to uh, spend uh, on this. And the additional news that uh, Riley uh, broke that the governor has switched his position from definite yes to definite maybe. Yeah. Uh, Good stuff, right? Well, interesting stuff. Uh, An interesting move on Nevada and the energy's part um, to suddenly embrace um, some fairly massive solar projects and battery projects, which would substantially increase the number of megawatts they produce that come from solar and renewable uh, energy, but only if this ballot initiative fails, does, are we left to assume that otherwise, you know, it's a big shrug, they don't care. So as I guess was the case before, so I suppose nothing's changed there, but it's an interesting move. And I, you know, I'm not sure what they're at. I'll be interested to see as 
ads go up now following this move by Envy Energy. So what's what is the pitch now to the voters going to be that you don't we don't need energy deregulation anymore because Envy Energy is totally on board exactly. and we're already here. We're already running exactly. the show. We're going to keep your rates low. That'll be it, right? I, I think that's exactly what it is. And it's as I as I uh, mentioned, I don't think it's any coincidence this is coming in the context of the campaign on the Energy Choice Initiative. Envy uh, Energy is basically listen, we'd love to do this. We've always wanted to, d- to do this, uh, but we won't be able to do it in this new environment because we have to divest of all, the, of, all, of all this stuff and we might just become a wires company, but we've always been committed to it. You don't need the Energy Choice Initiative. And I think this is just part of what I consider to be a pretty remarkable campaign that Envy Energy is trying to run here. I, I would have thought after it passed three to one or two and a half to one, whatever it was in 2016, they had no chance to beat this thing. Now they're clearly, they, they've gotten a couple of chambers of commerce now to come out against question three. They're developing this building, the, the, this coalition to say we don't need this and to create fear about what it might be. Uh, the other side, so, so we so we mentioned, is being funded uh, by Switch and Las Vegas Sands. And, and, and I should disclose, just so people know, both Switch and Envy Energy, not Las Vegas Sands, <laughs> are, major, are major donors to the Nevada Independent. Right. Uh, and our, our, our Riley Snyder, I, I highly recommend reading all of his energy stuff. No, no reporter in this state knows this stuff better. But I, I am fascinated as a longtime political observer, Elizabeth, at, at this campaign by Envy Energy. And uh, how... Is it that they convinced the governor or the governor was convinced somehow to at least backtrack enough to say, well, I'm not sure now Uh, what he told Riley today and Riley's one on one uh, interview with him was he wants to look more closely at the recent PUC report that came out, which basically shredded uh, this initiative in a variety of ways, including claiming that rates for consumers will go up substantially. He also said he wanted to look at the pro arguments a little more closely. Are, are we to believe that the governor is already not intimately familiar with these issues? I'm, I don't know. But the fact that he's that he voted for it and is now saying, I'm not sure, I'm going to take a second look, that's pretty major. It's tough for the governor to justify this. And and, and people know I'm, I'm, I'm an admirer of Brian Sandoval and many, many things that he's done. But how do you, a, a regular voter saying, oh, I voted for this in 2016, but now I've learned all these kinds of things. And now I'm, that that's one thing. But for the governor of the state, and he's hanging it on, you alluded to this, the Joe Reynolds, the chairman of the PUC, came out with this report. He was viciously attacked uh, by folks from the Sands and, and from Switch, a rogue regular Later, these kinds of things for saying this. Uh, they, they thought they had the moral high ground on this, right? Choice is always better. We're sick of having this monopoly here. Give people better choices. People hate the power company, right? Especially in the summer in Las Vegas. And so <laughs> this has been an uphill battle. But now suddenly you have the governor going, going, and uh, uh, becoming Switzerland on this after he could have been very powerful for the choice side after yeah. saying he was for it. He is also, though, I kind of smiled as you were talking about about how a regular voter maybe could be persuaded to change his mind. I mean, Brian Sandoval is also a voter. Well, what I meant is that a regular voter may not have all the information that we know that the governor had. He's 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 been right. the governor, right? He's he, he he supposedly knows these energy issues. Listen, some of his very good friends are lobbyists for Envy Energy. People, I'm sure that you the switch, I'm sure that the switch folks and the Sands are, are thinking, oh, this is something that Pete Ernott or Greg Ferraro helped persuade him uh, 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 on the governor. 
would chafe at that. Uh, I'm sure, as would his well, friends. Well, he's a free thinker in his defense. I mean, I, I've, he, I've, we've seen this time and time again over the years on on policy. So certainly, he may have been persuaded to take a second look, and that's all he said. He may come out in a week or two or three or four and say, "Okay, I'm still, I'm still for choice." Uh, he didn't say. Uh, definitively today, so I don't. We don't want to overstate uh, what we've reported today. But it, it is interesting that he's backed off a bit. It's fascinating, and this campaign, which is going to be the most expensive ballot campaign by far in Nevada history, is going to be fascinating. We're going to be covering it, and it's going to affect your energy bills, people. So, and those of you in Las Vegas who think you pay a lot in the summer. Uh, there's been research and analysis done on you know some of our states in the Southwest and Texas as an example where rates can be a lot higher uh, well, than they are here now. My only advice for voters, and this is the ballot question that's going to affect their lives more than any other, yep. uh, is is to uh, essentially ignore the ads and read the NevadaIndependent.com. <laughs> that's uh, excellent where, advice. Where we are going to cover uh, this, and we also will try to fact check as many of their ads too, because you will not be able to ignore them when you're going to have sixty, seventy million dollars. Uh, and as let's talk one other topic here, uh, Elizabeth, another big story uh, that, that's going to affect a lot of people. And one one that uh, uh, our Megan Messerly has been all over since the session is this uh, drug transparency bill uh, that, that passed the legislature and now is in the regulation process and is also the subject of lawsuits. The, the drug industry has sued over this. Uh, the regulation process is, is now going on. Uh, Megan wrote a story previewing it, and then there was a four-minute hearing. Uh, only in Nevada, they have four-minute hearings to approve regulations. Workshop. It was Work- a workshop. It was a workshop, yes. <laughs> they did a lot of work in four minutes. Uh, and, and I guess uh, uh, this was fascinating in that both the Culinary Union, which pushed this bill, and the drug industry were opposed to these regulations for very different reasons. Big Pharma obviously doesn't trust the state to keep their trade secrets secret, and the culinary says that if you're going to keep stuff secret, uh, it's going to undermine uh, a bill that is supposedly a, quote, transparency uh, bill. This is a big issue. A lot of people are going to be affected by this. It's not just people with insulin. It's known as the insulin bill. This has global significance. Uh, This bill, if it holds up uh, uh, after the lawsuits and if it is not gutted by regulations, uh, is going to be a model for other states. Absolutely. At the heart of this issue, which I find fascinating, is the definition of trade secrets I wish I could tell everyone right now what the definition in Nevada is of trade secrets when it comes to pharmaceutical pricing, but there really isn't one. And so what's going to play out now after this decision to adopt a regulation today, which says, indeed, all of these pharmaceutical companies have until July 1st, clock's ticking, to submit all the information required by this new law, this transparent information about not just pricing, other things as well, to the state so that it can be looked at and, and analyzed that that's happening now. But there will be, as you alluded to, a court battle uh, over whether elements having to do with pricing can be considered trade secrets. Pharma will argue yes. Everyone else will certainly argue no. It'll play out in the courts. And in the meantime, those of us in the press are will be very eager to get our hands on these records. They did get some exceptions, I believe, in the law to the public records law, but not not complete exemption from public. We're, 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 we at the Nevada Independent are going to keep a close eye on this, uh, and we will not uh, uh, be, be afraid to enter the legal fray if necessary uh, to try to get uh, some of this Uh, made public. All right, Elizabeth, thanks as always uh, for coming on and uh, talking about these important issues. Happy to uh, do it. And that is all the time that we have this week for Indie Matters. A reminder, 
uh, that Indy Matters does, as I alluded to earlier, play on KUNV. That's the university's radio station, 8.30 p.m. on on Thursdays. We are uh, thrilled to be partnering with UNLV, and I want to tell everybody that we are going to be partnering with UNLV on election night, where where we are going to be having our, our unveiling of Indy TV. Uh, where Elizabeth and I are going to be presenting results uh, of the elections and analysis with our reporters, uh, and some UNLV students are going to be helping us out too. Yeah, starting at 6.30 p.m. on Tuesday, June 12th, we hope you'll go to the Indy TV page on the website. Uh, we're going to run it just like a standard election night broadcast in some ways, but in other ways, uh, I hope we're going to do a, a better job than what folks are, are used to seeing maybe on some of the television stations, more in-depth analysis uh, as the votes come in from all the counties, a more in-depth conversation on the big races and what they mean. And then as we call races throughout the night, which we will also be doing, uh, we'll be talking about that state of play and what does that mean? What does that mean for November and what does that mean for policy in Nevada? I think people get frustrated. Uh, I'm not singling out any TV stations. They, they have jobs to do, but I don't think people want to see reporters at, at, at parties talking to people who are, are half in the bag anyhow, cheering or being depressed about what their candidates are doing. We're, <laughs> we're going we're to be, we are going to provide, we're going to provide up to the minute results and analysis. We are going to call races. Uh, Indy TV is going to be something, our partnership with UNLV, as Elizabeth mentioned, starting at 630, polls close at 7. Those early and absentee voting numbers are, are, are going to be up. And as I said, uh, we do love partnering with UNLV. We do. We encourage you to have watch parties parties that night. Invite your friends. Tell your friends about the Indy. Please do tell everybody uh, about the Indy. So we want to know what you think about this podcast. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at the nvnd.com. That's ideas at the nvnd.com. Check out the site. I'll say it again, the nevadaindependent.com. Support our work uh, if you can. We're a nonprofit. It's 501c3. You can deduct that from your taxes, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever you can afford. We would really appreciate it. If you believe in transparent, fair, uh, in-depth news, we are the place to be. Rate this podcast on iTunes and subscribe. You can find this, as I mentioned, on Google Play and Stitcher. I want to thank again Assemblywoman Heidi Swank for being here and having that substantive discussion of payday lending. I also want to thank again our wonderful hosts here at UNLV, at KUNV on the campus of the university. And as always, many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer, who makes us all sound... Podcast smooth. My goodness, I have a bit of a cold and I could never be a podcast smooth, but Elizabeth, you are always podcast smooth. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Thanks for listening to Indy Matters. We'll talk to you next week.